0: Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. When former Boston Celtics center Bill Russell died recently at the age of 88, it was front page news, not just because the man won 11 NBA championships in three seasons with the Celtics, but because he was a historical figure. Russell was the leader by example of a generation of African-American athletes who took on the burden of history and made sport a front line in the civil rights struggle. Now that may seem a big claim, but the historical record says otherwise, and to have been a young sports fan, as I was in the years when Russell ruled the basketball court, well, anyway... In this podcast, I'm going to talk about that record and those times with Michael Carlson. Michael and I are of an age. Like me, he's a longtime American expat, although he's been living in England longer than I have. Carlson grew up in Milford, Connecticut, and wrote his smarts and athletic ability to Wesleyan University, where he played football and lacrosse. One of his teammates was New England Patriot coach Bill Belichick. In his time in the U.K., he's been a journalist, a sports executive, first at ABC TV Sports and then at Major League Baseball. For his third act, he went in front of the cameras to be an analyst for the National Football League games broadcast in the U.K. His ability to explain the game and his colorful style have had a great deal to do with the NFL's explosive growth in popularity here. Now... In the interest of journalistic transparency, I should add that he is my best friend. I even forgive him his being a Boston Celtic fan. Russell's death hit him hard.
1: He was one of my first, maybe my first, real sporting idols who transcended the sports world. An idol not because he was the best, although... You can make a very good argument that he was, and he certainly had the winning seasons and championships to back that up. But because he carried himself with such grace and dignity, uh, both on and off the court, Bill Russell was, I think, the first person in my life I ever asked for an autograph. I was in my 20s working in Montreal at the Olympics, and Bill Russell was doing the um, basketball for ABC, and I was in that. I was doing the press in the Montreal Forum. And I asked him for an autograph and he declined. He said, I don't sign autographs, which was his policy. He didn't do autographs, but I said, um, okay, I understand. But, you know, I really, I think I said something stupid. Like, you know, I really admire you um, and for all, for all the things you've done. And, and he, he's, I put out my hand and he shook my hand. So I thought that was kind of like, uh, you know, remember, remember the famous line, from uh, John Updike about Ted Williams, gods, gods don't answer telegrams or gods don't answer letters, something like that. I, I thought this was well. that was enough of an answer from Bill Russell. I think,
0: because we're both the same age and we're both not young. And it, it's interesting how to remember what it's like to look at through 11, 12, 13 year old eyes some sporting idol, because it, it is different when you're a kid then when you're a grown-up and you can say, geez, that guy's a really great player, and you're just thinking about his athletic skills, but you convey on a professional sporting hero a great deal more.
1: It was a very different aura because in our youth, the for the most part, the, the Black sporting heroes, and I'm thinking particularly, say, of Willie Mays or Ernie Banks in baseball right now, Willie Mays was the say-hey kid, Early Ernie Banks was. Let's play too. They they were all presented as easygoing, natural ath natural athletes in quotation marks, um, happy spirits. And Bill Russell was not. Nobody called Bill Russell Billy or Willie like Jim Brown, the football player. Nobody ever called Jim Brown Jimmy, but black players were normally almost always automatically given those diminutives. Which Russell rejected. He didn't look like a happy person on the court most of the time. He looked like he was intensely serious. And he was standing up for both his own and... Racial dignity, because in order for as for a black man, in order to stand up for your personal dignity, you had to stand up for racial dignity. um And I think even at that young age, and and I was certainly aware of Russell. By I suppose by the time I was ten, if not earlier, that stood out. It, it was an aura that that that, um, that that came around him. And and as you grew older, you could see the different ways that the press approached Russell. I said, you know, he he didn't sign autographs. It was something where he thought. He wanted to maintain his privacy, and he had no relationship with these people. and And um, I don't necessarily agree with the the concept, but but I could understand it. But the way it was presented in the Boston Press was he wouldn't sign a, in autographs for white kids.
0: The difference between Willie Mays or Ernie Banks or Jackie Robinson, Robinson less so, is that integrating the major leagues and well, you know, football. Professional football was integrated at roughly the same time, maybe a little earlier. Everybody knows the Jackie Robinson story, and how the Dodgers management scoured America for an African American athlete who would be able to handle what was going to be thrown at him, and they found Jackie Robinson. That Willie Mays, who whose personality really was. Kind of sunny and sunny country boy, because he was a sunny country boy from Alabama, but ch- but promoted because he could take whatever was going to come his way. Henry Aaron Lesso, he was quite a pricklish fellow as well. He he didn't take well to the racism they encountered. All of this in the nineteen fifties, and then you get to the nineteen sixties. It's curious how the arrival of African-American athletes in major American pro sports precisely mirrors the progress of the civil rights movement. And when it finally gets to the mid-60s, when things are dangerous in the streets and a more assertive attitude is being brought forth by the civil rights movement— it again is mirrored in the athletes of the 1960s, like Bill Russell and like Jim Brown, men who simply felt, well, yes, we're entertainers, but we're also operating within our own spheres of excellence as men. And don't don't think that we're just here to smile for you.
1: Yeah, their, their function as entertainers was strictly limited by their race as well. Things like television commercials, um, magazine advertisements, appearances on television shows were very strictly <laughs> rationed in those days. And, and of course, basketball was not yet the major sport that baseball was and that the NFL would become in in the early 60s. And you could see in the progression of the 60s, the way that basketball, the urban sport, which it had always been, you know, Jewish kids playing it. Uh, young Hebrew associations in the 20s and, and the 30s, uh, New York City kids playing on playgrounds, uh, black and white. You know, it, it the urban sports started to become bigger and bigger, uh, and it's interesting too that, like you as you mentioned, you know Willie Mays. They were more or less country boys from from the South. The big basketball players who came along, Russell was from Oakland, uh, Wilt Chamberlain was from Philadelphia. They were urban and they had grown up in in mixed race environments, still facing the secondary status of blacks, but very much more used to approaching at least the the white establishment on a more equal basis.
0: It's interesting that you know as as, as you know we're sixty. 60- Years past the civil rights era now, and it's a different conversation about race in America. But when we were growing up, sport was often the only place where real integration took place. Now, you you were an athlete, and you you got your education in in part because you were very bright, Michael, but also because of your your athletic skill. You got scholarships and so on. I mean, did you know any black guys your age in Milford, Connecticut, before you went to Milford Academy?
1: It's funny because I went to Milford Academy on an academic scholarship for for the local public schools, and I was only 13 in my my first year. But Milford was, like many prep schools, post-grad school who would recruit players who had already finished high school but couldn't get into college or into a good enough college football-wise, especially, or basketball-wise so that really my first competition with black black uh, kids was older older kids who were really good athletes who came from either New Haven or Bridgeport, the two urban centers that basically bord- bordered Milford on, on either side. That was a very interesting experience, but one that didn't carry over to the post-game scenarios, partly because I was so young. I didn't you know, even drive a car till I was almost finished with high school, and they were out doing their own things in 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 their cities. Um, and there I was in in my little town. But I do not remember any racial animus at all in high school. When I got to college, I played on the freshman team with with a very good running back, black running back, and we've had we had a few other players, but. There was by then it was the late '60s, and there was this sort of feeling about that you ought ought to be playing your own style and not be hemmed in by white coaches in a white atmosphere. This particularly applied to basketball. And at one point, while I was in college, um, all of the black basketball players dropped out of the varsity and freshman teams, which gave them a tremendous intramural team. <laughs> called the Black Diamonds, but was a, a kind of short-lived expression. I think of the difficulty of or of institutions like Wesleyan University of opening and opening themselves up uh, on a grand scale. Wesleyan, Wesleyan, we we gave lots of scholarships and um, and had a very large minority presence, but it was still in essence a white university with its 50s ethos, sort of slower to catch up with its admissions ethos.
0: Russell, Bill Russell, had a similar problem at the University of San Francisco when he was recruited there. And there were only two black players on the University of San Francisco team as a Jesuit institution in San Francisco. Russell and his future teammate on the Celtics, K.C. Jones. And Russell had grown up playing, playing in a, an urban environment across the bay in Oakland, and his coach insisted that he played defense in the traditional way, and, you know, that feet on the floor, be balanced, square up to your opponent. And, you know, here's Bill Russell who could, with a running start, put a quarter on the top of the backboard, and it was a skill that the white coach simply didn't know how to deploy. And Russell famously just stopped paying attention in the huddle and just did whatever he wanted to do. And and they won 55 games in a row, two NCAA championships. And it was that kind of silent fight against, well, this is how we do things in our world that I think a lot of African-American athletes coming up in the 50s and 60s had to confront.
1: I And I think that's one of the things that can't be emphasized too much was that while Bill Russell was doing everything he did, he literally changed the game of basketball, arguably more than any other any other player. He made the game a vertical game instead of a horizontal game would, would be the easiest way to express it. George Mikan saw him, I guess his last year in High school because it was the only year he played on the varsity, and knew right away Mike and was the epitome of the big slow white center, the greatest one in the NBA up till Russell came in and said the game is going to is changing forever. We can't comprehend how good this guy is, even as he was being held in place by his coaches. His last game in college, he had was twenty six points, twenty seven rebounds, and twenty block shots. Uh, somebody went back and looked at the film to to come up with that because they didn't even count block shots as a statistic in those days. It was, it was so unheard of. And when he went to the Olympics, he ignored his Olympic coach almost as much as he ignored his college coach. I think the great blessing of his career was that in Red Orbach at the Boston Celtics, he found a coach who <laughs> he didn't have to ignore, who not only knew what he could do on the court, but also knew how to treat him as a person and get the best out of him, but help him get the best out of the rest of his teammates.
0: That personal relationship is important because one of the things, I mean, I, I I always think of Russell, along with Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali and some others, as representative of just a whole new world of sport and one that would be dominated by African-Americans. And when Jim Brown came over to, here to London to make the Dirty Dozen. And he was at the peak of his career. He'd played nine seasons in the NFL, led the Cleveland Browns to the championship. And he was thinking ahead because he's a smart guy and he knew football wasn't forever and he was interested in trying acting. So he comes over here to make the Dirty Dozen. The Dirty Dozen, as often happens, runs over on a shooting schedule. Now it's August and he's got to do some reshoots. So he asks Art Modell if he can report to summer training camp late. And Modell, in maybe the war, one of the three or four worst management decisions in the history of sports, writes him back a very terse letter. It says, no, you, no man is bigger than the team. Jim Brown was not unaware of his worth, and The tone of Modell's letter was really poor. And Jim Brown wrote him back in a similar tone, saying, I respect you as a man and I expect the same respect. And I'm not, I'm retiring. And he then called a press conference in London and announced his retirement. And I remember, and you probably remember, that the newspapers in America covered this as big news. This is the greatest player in in the history of professional football. And he's
1: walking away. How can he do it? He owes us. They basically took Modell's line. He owes us. He owes his team. And when Muhammad Ali resisted the draft, they held a, a summit in Cleveland with a number of star athletes supporting him. And in the front row, sitting next to him on one side was Bill Russell. On the other side was Jim Brown. Next to Brown was was Lou Elsinder, who became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and they all were they all were treated the same way as as kind of uppity is still the word that springs into my mind as sullen sullen Negro athletes as opposed to to ha- to happy ones. But this was the forefront of of the civil rights movement among celebrities.
0: You know, I, I'm writing at Substack this. Memoir history of how America went from victory in World War II to Donald Trump in my lifetime, and in the chapter on race, which is up at Substack, I have a long section about this, this event which took place in Cleveland. What Jim Brown had done is he'd organized something called the Negro Industrial Economic Union. Now Brown by then had retired from football, and at the meeting, what these men were doing was, you know, they were trying to convince Muhammad Ali to go into the army because the army, well aware of Ali's status, had said, look, you can have an Elvis Presley tour of duty. You know, you'll box exhibitions in Germany. You don't... and, And Ali refused. And Russell said at the time to Sport Magazine, I think... He has something I've never been able to attain and something very few people I know possess. Absolute and sincere faith. I'm not worried about Muhammad Ali. He's better equipped than anyone to withstand the trials in store for him. What I'm worried about is the rest of us. And and aside from showing how thoughtful Bill Russell was, I think this event shows a degree of unity and understanding amongst these remarkable athletes and men that they actually, because of how America evolved as a racist society, there, were, you know, there was no Barack Obama. There were very few non-athlete prominent citizens in the African-American community, musicians maybe, always on the entertainment front. And they were stepping over outside the athletic arena into an economic and political arena.
1: In a way that entertainers didn't at the time, for the most part, with a couple, you know, Harry Belafonte jumps to mind as as an exception. And Sidney Poitier, yeah. And Sidney Poitier, but... Because nowadays, it- nowadays it's it's entertainers who are in the forefront and sportsmen who are now en- much more entertainers than sportsmen in, in in many senses, uh, and they're certainly paid like it, who who have backed off. You know, you think of Michael, Michael Jordan and you know, the what was it, Republicans buy sneakers too or something like that. It's a real, it's a real backing backing off. I think from from those days, and the impact on the younger generation, which was our generation, basically, I think took took a lead from them that said that your participation in resistance was legitimate, and and was important. And when the student strikes came in 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 May of '70, following the the Kent State shooting. And the, the strikers were striking for an end to the Vietnam War, release of political prisoners, uh, particularly Bobby Seale of the Black Panthers, um, and economic equality. On, on my campus, our lacrosse team, which I was a member of, um, was the first organization to join the strike ahead of the faculty, ahead of you know the student body per se. And when we were discussing it in our little team meeting, that came up, um, Muhammad Ali, who who spoke on campus? You know, what do you think they'd do? What do you think he'd do if he were there? This was—it was an important, important moment for an entire generation. I think
0: of 1968 at the Mexico City Olympics, when John Carlos and Tommy Smith stood on the uh, podium after the 200-meter race and raised black-gloved fists to the sky. This image is one of is one of the major images of the civil rights movement the in, just the 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 close close uh relationship between african american athletes and bill russell was a leader here is a wonderful story he told on in an interview which is streaming at the library of congress it's a 3 hour conversation with taylor branch who wrote the definitive history of the civil rights era Branch says to him, Oh, well you, you were on the you were on the podium at the March on Washington when Martin Luther King King delivered the I Have a Dream speech. And Russell gently corrects him, he says, No, no, we stayed in the same hotel. And Dr. King asked me to join him on the podium, but I declined. And when he asked why, I said, Because I didn't do any work to organize this meeting. I'm just here as a man. And there and and so he was in the front row but off the podium listening to that speech bill russell was close to martin luther king jim brown they they all were effective participants not involved in organization and management of the movement but faces of the movement and this was an exceptional thing and You know, I just want to shift on to one other thing, which is, you know, in 1967, just around the time of this Cleveland meeting organized by Jim Brown, came arguably the the most important after Jackie Robinson breaking the color line in baseball, the most important event in integrating sports in American history, which was the University of Texas at El Paso playing five black guys Whipping the University of Kentucky in the NCAA final.
1: Playing five white guys.
0: Because Kentucky wasn't integrated. And within how many years was the University of Alabama
1: under Bear Bryant recruiting black players? It's interesting because Russell's Celtics were the first NBA team. The the Celtics were the first team to draft a black player back in 1950. A guy called Chuck Cooper. Um, Russell became the first black star. And in, on Boxing Day, 1964, they became the first NBA team to start five black players when Willie Knowles replaced an injured Tommy Heinsohn and then won 12 consecutive games. And some reporter asked Bill, Bill uh, sorry, Red orback about it. And Red said, oh, did we really? <laughs> I didn't notice. <laughs> he said, well, Leo, do you, what was the point you were making? He said, the point I was making was I was putting my five best players on the court because we want to win. Uh, and i just i just thought symbolically we were there in that time we were we were privileged to be young at that time
0: earlier we were talking about the difference and i between today and when we were coming up as they say sitting on the porch spitting tobacco juice into a spittoon <laughs> i do think that sport mirrors still the complexities of race and race relations in America. When you talk about commercials, for example, endorsements, you know, there came a moment in the late 60s and early 70s when marketing men realized, you know, actually, there is money in, to be made in getting Bubba Smith, an enormous man, to drink light beer from Miller.
1: Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. And De- Deacon Jones. Mm-hmm. You know, tearing the can in two, saying I like the easy open cans. Um, but nowadays, I mean the culture has moved to the point where where black athletes have unlimited opportunity and, and crossover with the with the music world, especially.
0: And I should say also black actors. I mean, one one of the things that I notice most when I go back to America, especially if I'm back during football season, which since it coincides with election season, and I go back. Before COVID, I, w- I was in the U.S. most autumns doing political reporting for the BBC. You know, you sit down, you watch a game, and almost every commercial for junk food or beer or whatever, a bunch of guys sitting around watching the game, and it's always integrated. Right. To me, that's an enormous change because I can't remember when I was 15 or 16 Ever seeing integrated commercials, so the sports teams were integrated long before the settings in which advertisers felt comfortable placing their products.
1: The the counterculture gives way to the over counter the culture. Yeah, uh, in America, that money always talks. But you know, the the one thing, and and I was I used it uh, writing an obituary of Bill Russell for for the Guardian. He received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama in 2012. No great surprise there. Um, I think Obama probably grew up with the legend of Russell. He's a lot younger than we are, um, more, more than anything else. But five years later, when Colin Kaepernick and his teammates began taking a knee and Donald Trump you know, said, get those sons of bitches off the field. Uh, you know, they should be fired. Bill Russell put out a, a little video he was very active on social media, which was great because he was in his 80s and still still sharp as a tack. And he took a knee in the video holding the Presidential Medal of Freedom in one hand. And unfortunately, social media doesn't quite carry the impact that the Olympics in 1968 did because media is so much more diffuse nowadays. But to me, this was the kind of image. This was a Tommy Smith, John Carlos kind of image. Here, here's a Black man who's been honored by the president of the United States for not just his sporting excellence, but for the front and center position he took in the civil rights era and fought for his own dignity and other people's dignity. And he's taking a knee and holding up this medal as if to say, shut up to Donald Trump. And it drove me back to find the quote, because I remembered there was a quote from Red and Me. His father, Bill Russell's father, told him, about what his father had told him. A man has to draw a line inside himself that he won't allow any man to cross. And I think to me, the essence of Bill Russell was that he drew that line very firmly for himself. And he did the best he could to draw that line for all the other people who maybe weren't in the position to draw it and have it be effective.
0: Michael Carlson, thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Michael.
0: And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Thanks again to Michael Carlson for making time to speak with me. If you're interested in reading more about the intersection of sport and civil rights in the 1960s, it's in Chapter 5 of my Substack, History of a Calamity. The URL is michaelgoldfarb.substack.com. And of course, visit the FRDH website, where there's lots more to listen to, and you can make a donation to help keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.